You're listening to Look at My Records. This is episode 217, and I'm your host, Tom Gallo. For this edition of Look at My Records, I spoke with Dennis Dyken, drummer of the legendary New Jersey band, The Smithereens. The Carteret, New Jersey natives and New Jersey Hall of Famers have been at it for over 40 years. Along the way, they've sold millions of records, played on Saturday Night Live, toured the globe, and done just about everything you can do as a band. Following the tragic and untimely passing of frontman Pat Denizio in late 2017, the Smithereens have continued playing live to critical acclaim with a rotating cast of singers that includes power pop icon Marshall Crenshaw and Gin Blossom's frontman Robin Wilson. Last month, the band unveiled their Lost Album, a record that was recorded at Crystal Sound Studios in New York City in early 1993, only to be shelved for three decades. During our conversation, Dennis and I talked at length about the Lost Album, including the circumstances surrounding the mid-90s recording sessions, why the album is now seeing the light of day, and more. We also chatted about the band's heyday, where Dennis shared fond memories of a special show supporting Squeeze at Brendan Byrne Arena in 1987, playing a gig in Iceland when the band's debut album, Especially For You, was number one on that country's charts and more. Plus, Dennis picked some awesome records from my collection, including choice cuts from The Zombies, The Impressions, and more. We'll dive into our interview right after the jump. If you're interested in hearing more episodes of Look at My Records, they're available on all streaming platforms. Please remember to rate, review, like, and subscribe on your platform of choice. I also encourage you to check out the Look at My Records website. Reviews, premieres of new music, playlists, and a whole lot more. Check it out at lookatmyrecords.com. All right, I'm here with Dennis Dyken of the Smithereens on the Look at My Records podcast. Uh, the band is about to release a lost album, which is super exciting, that was recorded in 1993, shelved for many years, and now is seeing the light of day. But before we get into that, Dennis, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for speaking to me. I know I mentioned before the jump that you know i'm a longtime fan so it's really cool oh to thank you. I, you that really does mean a lot to me because i know what it's like to be a fan you know and when when people tell me that i can tell they're sincere and they're in, into what we do it uh, has a lot of meaning for me and to answer your other question i'm doing really good thanks glad to hear it i know smithereens are about to hit the road for some more shows so that's exciting uh with both rob and wilson of um, the Jim Blossoms and Marshall Crenshaw as well. So you're getting ready for those gigs? Yeah, we, it's actually been an ongoing yeah. weekend, kind of extended weekend trips for us mostly. So uh, we, all summer, all year, actually, uh, ever since the COVID thing got a, subsided a little bit anyway, uh, yeah, bands have been hitting the road again and... Yeah, we've been out pretty much all year. Uh, so we're 
ready, willing, and able to continue. Yeah, and you're sounding great. I remember, I guess it was earlier this year that you played at uh, in at the Hoboken Arts and Music Festival again, and you you played there a couple of years ago as well, both times with Marshall Crenshaw, sounding really great, uh, as good as ever, I'd say for sure. Thanks. You know that 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 also means a lot, and you know I appreciate that too. That uh, well, you said we sound as good as ever, and that uh, I I just uh, want to say that. For whatever reason, <laughs> we when we take the stage, I'm speaking for Jimmy, Mike, and myself. Um, it really, we just feel like we're teenagers again, and that feeds into our energy and and the way we play. It's like I love uh, the fact that we still have that that spark for some reason. It's uh, and it you know it really grew out of loving records and growing up together and going to concerts together and driving to import shops and we still have that that thing going on so it comes through in our live shows so i'm glad that you picked up on it yeah totally and do you think you have even a greater appreciation for it now than you did in the past i i I do think that when we first started our real touring days you know once especially for you was out in 86 there was a certain uh i guess you would say magic or a feeling that uh we had i know that i had that uh feeling that, wow, maybe I can really do this for a living moving forward, you know? Uh, There was just that certain spirit in me that uh, was uh, very uh, palpable. And, uh, yeah, then, uh, honestly, touring can get to be a grind, uh, even though it's still fun when you get up on stage and play. But we were doing so much. uh, That first tour lasted 15 or 16 months. And uh, the subsequent uh, trips didn't weren't quite as long, but still, yeah, I think that having taken a break from the real uh, uh, busy touring schedules that we used to have, maybe that's true. Maybe it's, it's refreshed us to some degree, and we're also feeding off the energy of the audience. We had a lot. Of, we played a lot of colleges in the day, and a, a lot of the kids that came to see us when they were in school. They graduated, had families, had careers. Now they're empty nesters, and they're coming back, and uh, coming back to see us. So we're feeding off of the, all that good energy too. Yeah, totally. And something I want to build off of that you mentioned was the excitement of the fur the the Smithereens really breaking through around 1986 with the release of especially for you. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. don't really realize that you were playing together for, you know, about six or seven years before that. I know you and uh, uh, Jim were playing together even longer than that, uh, but playing with right. Pat for uh, since about around, I guess, 1979 or 1980. And you mentioned that you started realizing that, wow, I could really start to do this for a living. What was the moment where you kind of had that realization where you were thinking to yourself, wow, the band is really uh, taking off in, you know, a way that maybe you didn't expect at first? Well, it's funny because I I have been remembering in in interviews of late uh, a very specific moment in 1986. I think it was late summer, early fall. Uh, We had been on the road for four or five months at that point maybe three months. Anyway, uh, we were playing 
the Roxy. I think it was our second time playing the Roxy in Los Angeles on Sunset Strip, uh, where, where we had eventually returned to quite a few times. And um, Blood and Roses, our first big single from Especially for You, uh, had been doing so well for us, and it was starting to run its course. And Enigma Records at the time, the label we were on, was in the process of promoting the second single, Behind the Wall of Sleep. Our promo man, Rick Winward, uh, after soundcheck at this particular Roxy show, he, he called us aside into the stairwell that leads up to the uh, dressing rooms at the Roxy, and he just ha had a little quick meeting with us and told us that uh, it looks like this new single, Behind the Wall of Sleep, is getting added at major stations, and that we're going to be scheduling to do a video for it. And it was at that moment that it dawned on me that, okay, well, maybe the band really does have legs. And uh, it's not just a one single type of thing and that we could continue this and maybe uh, that second single will do well and perhaps that'll give us the platform to keep going. So it was a very... Uh, a very singular moment that I remember. And that, uh, I, I think about that a lot. And I do recall the feeling I had and, uh, yeah, that, that was it. Yeah. And that ultimately led to a lot of great opportunities for the band. I mean, just looking through, you know, I was a young child at that time. I was born in 1987. So, uh -huh. but looking back on YouTube and, you know, scouring the internet, you know, the band, got to do a lot of really cool things. You played on The Tonight Show. Uh, you were the musical guest on SNL at a time when, you know, cable TV was, uh, you know, not as extensive as it is now. There were no streaming things for people to compete for uh, compete with for eyes and stuff like that. So, so playing on SNL back then or stuff like that was a really, you know, big deal. Millions and millions of people probably watched that episode uh what are some of your favorite moments from the band's heyday well you just mentioned one for sure saturday night live as you said there were yeah there was no there weren't instant gratification outlets to find your favorite music or or even images and uh, or appearances by your favorite bands you know it, you couldn't just pick up your phone and click on youtube to not just to, to see a band, but even to access music as we do now. It's it's so easy. But back then, you had to work at it a little bit. So uh, Saturday Night Live, I guess, was the uh, pinnacle at the time uh, for for uh, for bands to to get that brass ring and appear on that show. And that was we did not take it lightly. That was certainly a big deal. We had the opportunity to. Um, work with Del Shannon, uh, who Very was a, cool. an artist, yeah, who was a, a, a major artist in the 60s, and even through, into the 80s, he was having some chart records, but uh, I guess his biggest hit, for those who may not know, is a song called Runaway. He had been a hero to me and to us since we were little kids, and uh, we got to know him, and he actually came in and sang on our Green Thoughts album. He sang uh, some backups on the song, The World We Know. And I got to sing at the same mic with him <laughs> uh, for that session. So that was one of those pinch me moments. And then he called Jimmy and I to sing backups on one of oh, his wow. sessions. Yeah. Um, 
Oh dear me! Uh, there was I'm trying to think of some of the other highlights. Uh, I know getting to play. Um, yeah, the band. I know you got to play with Lou Reed too. There's just so many incredible highlights. I feel like. Yeah, and playing. Uh, playing. Um, here was a highlight in 1988. We did a summer tour opening for Squeeze. Oh, awesome! And on the itinerary. Yes, and it was awesome. Let me tell you, and uh, and they were clearly the headliners, and they had a, a lot of fans and a lot of respect out there. But on the itinerary was um, a show at what was then called the Brendan Byrne Arena here yes, in the Meadowlands yes. in New Jersey, uh, a, a hockey arena. And I mean that was that was our. It turned out to be our show, really, because we had so many of our uh, hometown fans come to see us. Our parents were there, uh, and we played our opening set. And I remember so vividly seeing uh, uh, from the stage, looking up at the different tiers of of the arena where the light came through, where the doors were to go out to the concessions and bathrooms. That. People were just joined hands and dancing around this, the, the cir- circumference of the of the arena, and that that was a big, big thrill. Just playing to uh, our, our Jersey friends and family, and uh, feeding off that excitement. We got to play the Reading Festival, Glastonbury Festivals, both of those in England. Um, God, there's so many other highlights. Uh, I can't even stop and think right now. But that those are a few. Yeah, the cool thing and just going on to YouTube and watching Smithereens related videos was that early on you did seem to be really well received in the UK. There are clips of the band playing on a couple of different UK uh, TV shows. What was your reception like in the UK from what you remember early on? Yeah, it was quite good. Uh, we, gee whiz, on our first tour, I think we went there maybe two or three different trips actually. And, uh, yeah, they, they really, uh, they appreciated our no nonsense approach to <laughs> yeah, rock and roll. Totally. <laughs> you know? totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said, we did, uh, we did those festivals and a, and a bunch of other dates. And uh, speaking of overseas in on that first tour, we also went to Reykjavik in Iceland where we had in that country at the time, the number one That's album, awesome. especially for you. <laughs> yeah. We land, we, we landed and they showed us the charts and, uh, there above Phil Collins, Madonna <laughs> and Michael Jackson was, was especially for you. And, uh, we played two nights at the opera house in Reykjavik and that, that was a highlight too. That was a lot totally. of fun. Totally. I feel like it's such a, signifier of you know an accomplishment for a band even today to take your music abroad wherever it is and to see it resonate with people outside of your home country and to be able to tour to audiences it's it's almost even i feel for bands today kind of a surreal feeling yeah it it, uh, i guess somehow it just signifies that your music is reaching people no matter where they are you know uh and that's all that's the most you can hope for if you're a a musician and just making a living by expressing yourself and doing what you always loved to do since you were a little kid and that's really what we're doing yeah it's crazy (laughs) absolutely 
And I have one specific question. I mentioned you to you that I also run this live music archive called the McKenzie Tapes. Uh, this Maxwell's uh, bartender and friend of mine, Dave McKenzie, um, you know, would record live shows and stuff back in the 80s on tape. Uh, and one of the shows that he had was the last show at Folk City, which the Smithereens played, I think, along with uh, the DBs and uh, Yola Tango as well. So I was curious uh, if you remember anything about that show. Uh, what do you remember about it? Because that venue was such an institution uh, in the village. And it seems like that show was a lot of fun in March of 1986. Doing a Google search, there's actually an article about it that everyone could read in the in the New York Times as well that's preserved oh uh, regarding that show? yeah yeah oh how about that um honestly I, I i remember the show i don't remember a lot of specifics about it but i do remember folk city very fondly uh pat denizio used to before we were signed he worked there and actually mixed sound for some of the live shows um and then we played there a number of times. One thing about playing Folk City, you did have to keep uh, an eye on your stage volume because there were some tenant issues uh, in, in the building. But I, I guess they were used to, uh, when they started anyway, having more acoustic uh, music that didn't uh, bug the people who lived in the same building. So I, I do remember that. And I, the thing I remember about Folk City the most was just the hang because uh, it was right there on on west third and uh, it was so easy to meet your friends there and just you know there were so many great series todd abramson and pat started this thing called the big combo series where uh, they booked three or four different kind of bands on a given night and there was a thing called music for dozens anyway there was always something good to see at folk city and there, it was just you knew you were going to run into your friends there. It was just a wonderful, I really miss folk city a lot. So, uh, yeah, it sounds like an amazing place. And it's funny that you mentioned the volume issue because this article in the New York times, uh, that people can read from March 28th, 1986, uh, the owner, Mike Porco specifically mentions that in addition to the rent rising that, uh, you know, adding more soundproofing would be prohibitively expensive mm. for the club. So that's another reason why I guess they decided to close, unfortunately. Oh, it says that in the article, huh? That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Well, that's it's, funny. it's true. Take it from me. It's true. <laughs> another question I wanted to ask you, I mentioned before we, uh, you know, started recording that I have a smithereens album 11 the 11 album i have a gold record that i purchased uh it's hanging in my record room uh here at my house and it was presented to uh someone at capitol records named liz welch um i posted it to the smithereens facebook group no one was able to figure out who that was or if they knew it uh knew the person but i'm, I'm curious if maybe you know probably not but maybe the name does ring a bell and you know i still do have my old address books with all my old contacts and some of the business cards so you know what tom i'm gonna look that up when, <laughs> as soon as soon as we uh finish the podcast today I, i'm gonna look that up and 
I'll get back to you just as soon as possible. Liz Welch, if you're out there, hope you're doing well. Um, yeah, and, and forgive me for not remembering you just offhand. <laughs> oh, good. I'm sure there's a lot of people uh, working at uh, Capitol Records back in the day that uh, were behind the scenes on uh, Smithereens Records. Oh, yeah. we. That's the other thing. When you're fortunate enough to have some success... You, you cannot overlook the team that is working, for, or the teams, plural, I should say, because people at Capital, first Enigma, and then we signed with Capital after. And Enigma was a pretty forward-looking uh, label at the time, independent, and uh, they had a great team of people there uh, that were promoting. I mentioned Rick Winward earlier. He was our radio guy. And then when we went to Capital, the whole PR force really went... Uh, went to town carrie baker was doing publicity for us and so many you know we would in addition to doing live dates okay i don't know if, if all the listeners realize that i guess it's still done it this way to this day but when you're on the road you not the band doesn't only play live shows we would make visits to maybe two three four different radio stations during the day yeah stop at a, a one stop the distributors for the records or do an in-store performance do phoners so uh capital kept us very busy at the time and uh yeah i have to tip my hat to to liz welch and all the other good people that uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you liz welch and the other thing i wanted to ask you i I'm interviewed another member of your family on uh, the, this podcast, Chris Dyken, who's a member of the uh, formerly New Jersey-based band Radical Dads. He's the son of your cousin. And when he had originally reached out to me and I saw his last name was Dyken, I immediately you know, asked him if you two were related since uh, you're both from New Jersey. And he said he was. And you mentioned you're still quite close with his dad yeah his who's your cousin his, his yeah. dad uh bobby i guess he calls himself robert now i still know him as bobby uh, <laughs> still lives in new jersey where uh, as do i and uh he's still a cool guy and we have maintained our friendship uh in addition to our blood relation for many years when i, I remember w one time in december of 1967 and this was typical of bobby uh my folks had to go to some event and it was like a Saturday night, and, and Bobby, who was a teenager at the time, he babysat for me, you know? And I went to his, his home, and we sat around watching, like, the Hollywood Palace on TV. And then he he, uh, he played. He had pictures of Lily. He had Temptations with a lot of soul album. You know, we were hanging out listening to records together. He, he, he was one of those older cousins that did not treat me like the snot-nosed kid that I was. So, uh, and he's actually a very... Uh, a prominent artist, a painter in Metuchen, New Jersey these days. So it's nice to maintain the, I, I love, and, and, you know, Jimmy is, I've known Jimmy since high school. Mike, I've known since grammar school. It's really special, I think, to maintain friendships that long. It's, uh, it's a big part of uh, what I dig about being alive. Yeah, those formative relationships are really important, and it's incredible to see them, uh, you maintain them and keep them flourishing. Yeah, I recommend it. So I want to move on to, you know, the current era of the Smithereens. You know, sadly, 
you know, Pat Denizio passed away uh, in 2016 or 2017. And, you know, very tragic passing. Uh, he's incredibly missed. And he was a front person and principal songwriter of the band. And so I'm wondering what was the the uh, what were what was the band, I guess, when it came time to think about regrouping the band and continuing the smithereens with Marshall Crenshaw and Robin Wilson? What was that thought process like amongst the three of you as far as, you know, wanting to continue the band with a rotating cast of front uh, people? Well, you know, it really happened all so fast. Pat passed away December of 17, which is going to be five years in a couple of months, if you could believe yeah. that. Boy, oh boy. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was a shock and it took a while for us to really, a little while to process his passing. What made, what made the transition a lot softer for us was the fact that at the time of his, his death, we had a gig already booked for January of 18 at the Count Basie Theater. And it was um, an event that was put together in, in conjunction with little Stephen Van Zandt. So Stephen said, let's hold, let's keep the date. The Smithereens will play and let's call on uh, a slew of vocalists and see if they would like to turn this night into a tribute to Pat. So that was literally a month after Pat's passing. Wow. So you got to remember the three of us go back to school days. We've it's really a family and we've been playing together that long. We learned to yep. play together that long. The sound of the band essentially is still what is combusted when the three of us hit the stage. So we gave it a go. And there was a, a number of singers that uh, we had worked with before, uh, actually not as our lead singer, but people we knew like Peter Zaremba from Flesh Tones, um, Lenny Kay and uh, yeah. Tony Shanahan. But uh, the two that really uh, we felt connected with us that night were Robin Wilson of Gin Blossoms, who we not, had not met prior to that night, but or technically, I think we did, but that was when he was working at Zia Records in Tempe, Arizona on our Green Thoughts tour. Apparently, uh, he was a big fan of ours and uh, was working the in-store yeah. that we did. So, uh, but... So lo and behold, we contacted him. He was around and uh, jumped at the uh, the opportunity to sing with us because he was and is a huge fan of ours. And it was, uh, you can tell, you know, when, when he sang with us that uh, it, it felt right. And of course, Marshall, we had known since the early 80s, we opened shows for him going as far back as 1981 or 82, I think. Uh, I remember playing the fast lane with him and in Asbury Park. Anyway, um, and then he played keyboards on our first album, uh, especially for you, and we just knew him. You know, we were all friends with him. And again, when he interpreted the tunes that night, it just it felt like a you know an old comfortable shoe. So uh, that really helped us make the transition. It was that night, really, you know, and and the love in that room on that night was. Uh, pretty thick it was a beautiful night i'll never forget it yeah 
And to me, seeing the band play with Marshall Crenshaw is incredible. I feel like he is perfect uh, front person for this band. I really want to see the band with uh, Robin Wilson because, again, as a fan of the Jim Blossoms, it's the the influence of a band like a Smith the Smithereens is pretty apparent in listening to their music. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure he is also uh, a great uh, front man for the band as well. He really is. Yes, it's true. And, and and each guy brings something different to the table. So it's it's always uh, something we look forward to, no matter who's, who's fronting the band. The other thing I wanted to add about Marshall is that in addition to us opening for him and playing with we we were really big fans of his music too yeah. you know i mean he he's somebody we really looked up to as a uh an artist songwriter and as a a singer and a performer so it's, uh, it's really it's nice to be able to do this with him now and he's having a good time with it so yeah, you you do seem like you're definitely having fun when the times I've seen you live, which is really cool to see. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, afterwards, after the Hoboken show, people coming up to to Marshall and taking pictures with him and stuff. So it must be it must be a lot of fun for for everyone. Yeah, uh, to see the fan re- reception and things like that. Yeah, it, it's really uh, it's a nice thing. It really, it's a nice way to. St- it's just a nice a nice way to conduct business. <laughs> totally. And now I want to shift to the the lost album, the recently unearthed uh Smithereens album which was recorded in the fall of 1993, 2 years after the release of Blow Up and about a year before the release of A Date with the Smithereens and I believe you had record the sessions for a date with the smithereens were actually prior to the sessions for the lost record is is that right no that's actually not correct. that's right after and there was that's right there after was, yeah here's the thing there was a i think a, a discrepancy in one of the press releases uh the actual recording of the lost album was not in the fall i asked them to try and correct that it happened er- <laughs> earlier in the year between january and April with a few overdubs in the early summer. So, um, but what you might be thinking is that when we did these sessions in 1993 in New York City at a place called Crystal Sound, now uh, no longer there, um, we had enough material for two albums. So we we recorded all the tunes you hear on the Lost Album and uh, the earlier versions of the songs we re-recorded when we signed with RCA for a date with. So that should correct the timeline for you. Gotcha. Gotcha. So yeah. What were the circumstances surrounding this recording session? Um, Were these, were these specific songs on the lost album songs that were kicking around for a bit? uh, And did it make the cut on older records? What, uh, and, and I guess what, was behind the decision to ultimately shelve this record. I think a few of the songs were floating around. Maybe one or two as as memory serves, but uh, by and large, I think they were a new batch of material that we we're looking to record after Blow Up. Um, and 
so we, yeah, like I said, we had a lot of lot of material there, be, uh, being that we recorded the other titles that we did put on uh, a date with, uh, and then so I don't, you know, we we chose those other songs for dates, and just kept doing our thing and moving forward then it wasn't that we shunned these songs at the time i don't know we, we just were, were coming up with new material and um we just left these on the shelf and now we're cleaning our closets and going through our archives and planning to do a lot of uh, archival issues in the coming year and years but this seemed to be the most realized collection of tunes that we could uh issue as a I guess the first big salvo of what will be an ongoing reissue campaign. Yeah, very exciting. And the other thing that this was kind of a transitional period for the band. It was right around the time that the band left Capitol Records and then ultimately went to RCA. So what was the circumstances as far as your label situation when you went into the studio for... Mm -hmm this uh to record the lost album and a day with the smithereens you know things just changed at capital regime changes and yeah disenchantment on both ends and yeah. uh we just felt we have all this stash and we need to uh get it down and it was just that we 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 the, the prior the previous three albums uh Green Thoughts 11 and Blow Up were recorded in Los Angeles. And uh, and that was great, especially Green Thoughts, because we were hanging out at the Capitol Tower. And uh, just... Yeah, that is definitely cool. That was... And also, I, I always refer to... Uh, we had uh, an assistant for the sessions who had keys to every room in the building. So at night, if, uh, if we weren't needed for recording at the moment, we would go traipse through like the president's office at midnight there's a picture <laughs> there's a picture of me uh holding a beer with my feet up on the desk of uh the president's office and and we went to the roof and and down into the echo chambers underneath uh, the parking lot which i think are still you can still hire those i think by telephone lines anyway so we were recording uh, a lot in los angeles Prior to that, we were using the record plant in New York City, pretty legendary room, um, and that was our home base. So for uh, when it came to do these sessions at Crystal, that comprised the uh, the songs that comprised the Lost album, we were back in New York. I think that I think you feel that a bit more in yeah. the grooves and feel of uh, the Lost album, and ultimately a date too, which was done at the magic shop on Crosby street, it was nice to be able to drive, uh, to work from your own house and from sleep in your own bed and, and just commute to work. And we, we really, <clears throat> excuse me. We really did, uh, put our nose to the grindstone. We went to the studio every day and went to work. It's the way life should be. If you're a musician, you know, and we just had a lot of fun and we collaborated a lot and we just, uh, you know, just focused on recording and creating. It was it was actually a pretty cool period. Yeah, what do you remember about the sessions specifically, maybe compared to the sessions for Eleven or Green Thoughts mm. and things like that, aside from the scenery change? Um, well, 
oh well, there's one big difference. We didn't have a producer. This was, uh, so what was that like for the band? I'm assuming maybe Pat kind of took the helm then. Yeah, I guess he, in his typical fashion, he probably did. However, we really did knock our heads together yeah. uh, for arrangements and parts. And uh, yeah, so that was a big difference. And uh, apart from that, I don't know. It was being that it was New York, and we had there was a a bar on the corner. That became <laughs> became Studio B, so that was nice and homey. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, any every session is is different. I guess dictated by the location. Uh, you just have different memories of the circumstance and the mood of of the project based on where you were physically and spiritually and mentally at the time. It was it was fun. We were home. And we were making music together, and uh, and Studio B was just a few paces away. So I can't remember any other stark differences, you know. Yeah, I got you. I, I like I like I do like working in L.A. and I, but I really like working in New York, you know. And uh, it's been a while since we've recorded in New York, I think. But anyway, I, yeah, it's. Uh, I guess I like recording any, anywhere. <laughs> And and what about just why this album was, I guess, why was it scrapped originally? And why release it now? What led to unearthing this record at this time specifically? Well, like I said before, I, I, we, we just, we didn't forget about it, but we were, we were, we signed to RCA uh, that summer, I believe, or late in the summer or fall. And then just went to town on the new album. And yeah. I, I guess when we were doing that process of A and Ring, or you know, ARing the record, we were choosing the songs. Um, no doubt we were listening to uh, the whole schmear of what we cut at Crystal. Matter of fact, I think yeah. we attempted one or two of, of those songs when we did a date. But. Um, it, I guess it was just uh, whatever we felt was rising to the top is what we were going to run with for a date. And then by the time we were gathering songs for the, the next album, it was uh, just a new new batch of material. And this just... Uh, I don't have any clear recollection of why we didn't revisit these any of these songs um, after that. But uh, as to why now, as I said before, we're digging through our tapes. Yeah. And um, it, this collection of songs sounds like it when we when we were listening to it. It's it just sounded like it hung together as an LP. Yeah, totally, totally. It's yeah. a great <laughs> it's a great Smithereens record for sure. It's I've been enjoying really enjoying listening to it. Oh, that's great, and you know that that's what people have been saying to us. So it's that's uh, very nice to hear that people are, are digging it. You know. Yeah, and the other thing I really like about it is it's still a rough mix of the record, which I think adds to the charm of unearthing something that, you know, was recorded at a specific time. It really kind of represents that period of the band, and you listening to it, you could kind of feel like you're there in the studio as it's being recorded because it's, it's still a rough mix. 
Uh, was there any consideration to maybe doing a final mix? Uh, why'd you decide to release it as is? Oh, I have a very uh, specific answer for that. Not necessarily a happy answer, but I forget how many years ago now. It might, oh gee, it might be pushing on 10 years now. Well, there was a big fire. Oh a, shit, I know what you're going to say. Damn, yeah. Yeah, there was a big fire at a storage uh, facility, yeah. a very uh, 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 venerated storage wow. facility in Brooklyn. Uh, I think it took up a whole city block that housed not only our tapes, but a lot of other artists and a lot of uh, documents and this and that film, probably. Matter of fact, we were driving home from a gig, I think, in Virginia. Uh, we were playing B.B. King that night, after the, the day after the Virginia gig. And as we were coming up on the Jersey Turnpike towards the Lincoln Tunnel, we said, oh, look at all that smoke. It looks like it's from Brooklyn. Wow, look at that. Big fire. And it wasn't too... You know, soon after that, we learned that, uh, well, that fire, the uh, the uh, the oxide of our tapes was fueling that fire. And um, it's funny because about a month or two prior to that, I made a visit to that facility to get out the master for our first EP, Girls About Town, from 1980. And I still have that, thankfully. Thank God, yeah. Uh, so the multi-tracks perished in that fire along with some other, I mean, I, fortunately we have safeties of a lot of things, but not yeah. necessarily multi-tracks, yeah. you know? So, I mean, we felt that even though it was considered, it was, might be considered a rough, it was still pretty realized. Totally. Uh, yeah. Totally. But it's, but it sounds it's, great. Yeah. And as you, I think you picked up on, it does, uh, it does have a, uh, immediacy to it and it does have, uh, it does convey the spirit that we had in the studio. We try to record as live uh, as a combo as possible. So, uh, yeah, I'm really glad that uh, you're not the only one to mention that. So I'm glad that's coming through. Totally. And do you plan on playing any songs from this record live at upcoming uh, Smithereen States? The answer is yes. Awesome. Um, there's a few songs that we're going to be re rehearsing soon. And... Uh, yeah, so we will. I, it's, it's it's just nice to uh, have a, a a new record out that's been sitting around, but that seems to uh, seems to be dug by by our fans. So that, that's nice. And we are going to be gearing up for a new studio album in the new year. Too, oh, that's really exciting! Yeah, I was going to ask yeah. if you're planning on recording new material. So that's very exciting. When can people expect yeah. that sometime next year or the year after? Yeah, hopefully uh, in 23. Yeah. Great. That's great news to hear. And before we go to the songs you selected, it's just more of a general question. The Smithereens, you know, as we've discussed, you know, did and accomplished a lot of great things as a band making guitar driven music. There's still a lot of great bands of uh, younger generations making guitar uh, driven music. What advice would you give to uh, those people in their teens and twenties, you know, picking up a guitar, jamming in their garage, uh, writing and recording rock music? What advice would you uh, give to them? All right. There's a couple quick answers to that. The first one, I don't mean this in a flippant way at all, uh, but take it from, someone with experience please wear hearing protection yes uh, very good advice uh, 
I, uh, I mean that wholeheartedly. I, I realize that a little too late. So I do suffer from some pretty bad tinnitus or tinnitus, however you pronounce it. So, um, there are some really good earplugs out there that allow some of the higher frequencies to come through. They have like a little tube that goes through them. So it, there, there are good ear, uh, earplugs that won't block out all the frequencies. So that that's number one. Number two, make sure that you're, well, not make sure it's tough sometimes, but it's, it's great if you could find other band members that, um, you really do have a common goal with and, and can share musical sensibilities and learn from. It's always good to play with uh, really good musicians. That, that does not mean that they, sh- they have to be virtuosos, but it does mean that they should have a passion and a commitment uh, for what they're doing, to what they're doing. Um, and it's important also to be able to get along on most levels with your uh, with your bandmates because you're going to be spending a lot of time together. Um, so you got to find some some respect for each other and common ground. And, and also you do really have to, uh, if you gotta be dedicated and expect that it might not happen overnight. If you really want to do it, you can do it, but you really have to stick with it and meet a lot of people because it's all about that and, and work hard at, at, uh, spreading the word about your music. But, uh, and the, and the final answer is have fun because if you don't have fun it's it's just not worth doing and that's what that's what's going to keep you going so those are my answers great answers great advice because i know a lot of people try to say that you know guitar music is dead but there are a lot of great young bands still doing their thing maybe not getting the recognition that they deserve so it's cool to hear from well, someone I mean, like it, you has done it well yeah, I want to interject that you're right. Um, in the mainstream, anyway, there's not a lot of guitar-driven bands. But yeah. I'll tell you, I know we have a friend, uh, mutual friend, Joe Bielock on WFMU. I listen to his show, or I listen to Sue Braun's show every week, and I, I'm knocked over yeah, totally. by how much new. Every week, there's a new band that I'm saying, "Wow, listen to this!" And it's not, it's not all. Uh, dance music there's a lot yeah. of good guitar good songwriting spirited playing and it just makes me lunge for my uh, pa- uh pencil and paper to write down the songs you know it's just wow yeah so anyway any any stand out to you in particular uh, i'm curious oh geez there's uh the ribeye brothers are great they're great yeah um yeah uh uh besnard lakes um yeah that's a great band too yeah. i really like best coast yeah best coast yeah, is best great best coast i mean uh, gee whiz I, there's a bunch uh other uh, uh, uh the resonars yes um the sadies i mean god i mean it's endless really and the other thing that surprises me that there's quite a few of these bands that are out there touring and making a living at it, you know? So there's hope. I never thought the goal was to, to have riches and yeah. be a rock star. It's about having the opportunity to do something yeah. that you really love and hopefully reach people with what you're doing. All right. We've come to that time in the program where we're going to hear some songs from the Smithereens Lost album. We're going to kick things off with out of this world it's the first song on the lost album 
We're going to follow it up with A World Apart, and then we're going to hear Pretty Little Lies. I 
at the park And I can't stand to live another day A world apart Thinking about your face for far too long And how I never knew just what to do Or how to get along They say you always hurt the one you really love And I flip apart And I can't stand to live another day A world apart I said that I would shelter you From this big mean old world Now I find that you are gone And I have lost the girl Now I can't stand to live without your love A world apart
everyone we just heard three songs from the smithereens brand new but kind of old record it's the lost album as we were discussing originally recorded back in 1993 but it just saw the light of day we heard out of this world a world apart and pretty little lies and you can get the smithereens Lost Album via the Smithereens website, officialsmithereens.com. And of course, it's also available on all streaming platforms. All right. So now we'll, we can move on to the, the record part. So we'll start okay. with the uh, seven-inch single from The Impressions, We're a Winner. Uh, I'd mentioned that I recently played this. I was doing an all-soul Motown um, 70s, 60s night and i i played this song and it was definitely a hit amongst the crowd well that's cool i remember buying this record when it came out in 1968 uh, at corvettes in woodbridge new jersey nice. um i always loved the impressions uh curtis mayfield uh, of course was the the leading force in that group uh and they started the, the earliest records I remember hearing by them were like, keep on, keep on pushing. And, um, oh, talking about my baby. And, uh, but we're a winner to me was just such a shift in their sound. And there's just every, I, I adore every inch of that record. Uh, the groove, especially that's the year I got my first drum kit in 1968. And that groove on that record and the spirit of, of that rhythm on, on that cut is just, I'm still trying to figure it out, actually, but it really influenced me and it really inspired me. And I, I love the arrangement and uh, the, 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 the live in the studio audience and the message and the vocals. It's, everything about that record just continues to inspire me and it's one of those records as i guess all of the ones we're going to be talking about that i just never get sick of hearing yeah so i'm curious about your uh what you were into around that time in the late 60s music wise because you mentioned this record this is a great record but also around that time you know i think a lot of the british invasion bands like the beatles uh, even the Rolling Stones, I know their Satanic Majesty's Request came out in 1967. We're getting a, a little more psychedelic and things like that. What what composed your, I guess, listening uh, at that point in time in in your life? Yeah, I loved everything, all the things you mentioned about that record and and those times. Uh, you know, grew up listening to AM radio, so. Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, it was. Yeah, I always say in the 60s, if you listen to AM radio, every it's hard to imagine now because it's all in the background. It's all came before us at this point. But every week you would hear a new sound, a new kind of record that you just didn't hear before. Wow, yeah. It was truly a renaissance period. And the, other, the thing about, I think a big reason behind it is because there was so much competition for chart positions. So producers, writers, arrangers, they were compelled to try and come up with some new rhythm, some new hook, some new unusual sound, a different kind of song. So it was to be a kid and to be in being into your transistor radio and buying records it was an adventure every not just every week every day you would you couldn't wait to turn the radio on because there were some new sounds happening so in 68 I, it was a, if you had lived through the early part of the 60s and followed the transi- the transitions that were happening in music it just seemed natural at the time um I love that Stones album you mentioned, yeah. Satanic Majesties. I think it gets a short shrift, but I love the sounds on it. Uh, and there's some cuts on there that I think hold up really well and are among some of the Stones' best. Um, so, yeah, I was rolling with the, the, the tide, you know. Uh, move, around 68, I, I think I bought my first Cream album also, yeah. which was a big deal because... That, well, this is not, even though Sunshine of Your Love was getting played on AM, it just seemed like, well, this is kind of stepping into some new territory. And uh, I even kind of thought, well, I guess I guess it's okay to do this. You know, it's, it's it was a little different, but a little trippier. But uh, yeah, so I, 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 I rolled with it all. Yeah, and another song that you pick from 1978 is Open My Eyes by Naz off of their self-titled debut album. And I love Todd Rundgren, as I'm sure you do as well, so I wanted to uh, highlight this one, this track as well. Yeah, I think you said 78, but it was 68. actually 68. Yeah, 68, yeah. yeah. Well, th- that uh, that's just a, a sonic punch, that, that, that record. It's from the downbeat of the, the keyboard and drums just assaulting you with that riff. And there's so much adventure uh, in that record and so much energy and so much imagination and a sense of joy and beauty and power. Uh, and it's a good, a well-crafted song, you know? And that riff, it just... It speaks for itself. I, I I can't even words can't even do it justice. But it, it, the, everything about it is just on the money, and it just explodes with joy and and yeah, a bit of that psychedelia and it's just it's, it's it's everything a record should be. I 100% agree. One of my favorite records.
And then you also selected uh, Marshall Crenshaw's Field Day. Great, great album released in 1983. At this point in time, when this record came out, did you did you have a relationship with Marshall, the band at that point? Had you played live with him before? Yeah, a little bit. We had opened a few shows for him. As a matter of fact, in 83, I remember we did a show at The Chance in Poughkeepsie with him, kind of memorable for us. But uh, Field Day, yeah, we knew him a little bit, um, yeah, mostly to s- say hello to. By the following year, we were he was starting to record with us in the studio. But uh, Field Day, recently, uh, Marshall and I, the two of us shared a drive to uh, Virginia, I think it was, so we had a lot of time just to BS and, and talk about our, our just memories of our careers. And he said something to me about Field Day, which I always felt, too. He said, uh, I told him I, I, it's my favorite album of his. And he, uh, he tended to agree. And he said, when what I like, what he's, in his words, what I like about Field Day is it's, it's one of those records that sounds like it might have been recorded on another planet you know it has those certain sonic qualities and uh, a certain spirit that uh, it puts it in line with um telstar by the tornadoes yeah. or the wind by the diablos you know just records that sound like they were uh divinely combusted somehow um and i really like the songwriting on that album i love his brother's drumming on it uh I love the choice of cover, the uh, What Time Is It, the Jive 5 song. Uh, that album, to me, I could listen to it over and over. It has that otherworldly quality to it, and it has a lot of heart and soul. And uh, and the, the lead-off track, Whenever You're On My Mind, it just uh, kind of sums up the feeling I have about that record. If I put it on, it really takes me to a place I like to go to. Totally. An amazing album. Amazing uh, record and also produced by Steve Lillywhite, who I'm a big XTC fan and he's produced some of their records too. So I thought that was awesome. Oh, that's cool. right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's right. And I think the, he credits Steve with helping him to get that, uh, Sonic, uh, that, uh, uh profile to that album. Rockaway Beach by the Ramones. Tell me a little bit why you picked this song. You loved the Ramones? Loved the Ramones. Um, started seeing them in 76, Max's Kansas City. Uh, little bars down in Asbury Park they would play. And uh, they just came along. They were one of those bands. There was There was not anything like them prior to them coming out there was just nothing like them and they had the purest rock and roll heart and uh they wrote wonderful pop songs i mean just you you know earworms that's great maybe that's not the best word to use but i guess that's a derogatory term i don't mean it in that way i just songs you can't get out of your head but you don't want them to get out of your head uh and just such a direct 
feel to what they were doing and and uh, crazy great personality with Joey. And we got to be friendly with them because we uh, our first the first leg of our first tour was opening for them in 1986. And uh, they dug what we did. And uh, Joey said something to us that uh, summed it up uh, after our first or second show with them. He, he said, you know what? You, you guys are pretty good. Maybe, <laughs> then he said, maybe a little too fucking good. <laughs> Your Joey Ramon impression is spot on. That's very, very good. Oh, thanks. <laughs> but they, they, they meant the world to us. Uh, they really did. And uh, they mean Rockaway Beach is just one of a, a million of their, their tracks I could have cited. But... Um, it's it's just so and the fact that it's Rockaway, you know, they want to do a, a, a you know a surf type record and they choose Rockaway Beach. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's so perfect, yeah. you know. But yeah, I can't say enough about Ramones and what they will always mean to the Smithereens. Last but not least, Tell Her No by The Zombies, which was released as a single in late uh, 1964 and then appeared on their uh, self-titled debut album in 1965. Uh, Do you remember first hearing this song? I feel like this song, uh, given the time it was released, may have uh, evoked certain memories or have special significance to you. I remember the day I got it at Lebo's Food Town in Carteret, New Jersey. Uh, I had, I think I didn't go to school that day because I had to go to the dentist. And uh, then I went to the store with my dad. I used to like to go grocery shopping with my dad on weeknights because there was two supermarkets in Carteret that had records. Uh, Not every supermarket did, but Lebo's Food Town had it. And then the A&P had records. So, Naturally, I'd go with them, and then I'd go over to the yeah, just a small browser of LPs and singles. But I would plant myself there, and uh, you know, beg my dad to, <laughs> to buy me records. And sometime he would, and sometime he wouldn't. But you know, so, nah, not tonight. But I remember getting uh, "Tell Her No," and uh, I, the Zombies uh, were one of those bands that stood apart from the other groups of the time. They just had that minor key. Uh, kind of wistfulness and melancholy about their their writing and the way they played and the way Colin Blundstone sang, and of course that that rhythmic refrain on there on, on the title line. It's just uh, and Hugh Grundy as a drummer was a great inspiration to me. I actually got to write a piece on him for Modern Drummer when they did the Odyssey and Oracle reunion tour. Seeing Hugh Grundy play along with the original bassist, Chris White. They don't do all the other... Sub- they haven't done the subsequent Zombies tour, that, that original rhythm section, but they came back for the yeah. anniversary of Odyssey and Orga. And that, to me, seeing both of them play together was uh, monumental for me. Uh, very, very special. But Tell Her No is just, again, one of many, many zombie songs that uh, remain fresh, remain inspirational, and... Uh, it's one of the great records 
of all time. Killer trip. And the B side, Teller, uh, uh, the B side, Leave Me Be, was a another uh, great, great side, and much more uh, uh, had a, more of a down feel to it. But uh, another one that really sticks to your soul. The, uh, something that I read, and now that you mentioned Del Shannon earlier in our interview, I think he did a cover of this song too at some point. Yeah, he did. Yeah, I think yeah. he slowed it down. As a matter of fact, Dell did some really good covers, um, and uh, you know, "Do You Want to Dance" comes to mind, and uh, "Sea of Love," and I, 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 Del Shannon is one of the great American artists of all time. If if any of your listeners aren't that familiar with him, I highly recommend that they uh, investigate Dell's catalog one of the great great art he someone described his singing as he sang like he had a teardrop in his in his voice and uh it's just something about his the soul of his records that really speaks yeah, to me amazing yeah. artist and if she tempts you with a charm Dennis, wow, such a such a thrill for me to to speak with you, talk about the Smithereens back in the day, and the Smithereens in the present. Uh, really exciting times for the band with the Lost album coming out, and of course the Smithereens playing a bunch of live dates and continuing to do that. And you mentioned you're going to head into the studio next year. To record new material, what what do you uh, envision for that? Are, are there set recording sessions uh, so far, and would that be with both Marshall and Robin, or and maybe even more uh, vocalists? Um, yeah, we haven't booked any sessions yet. Jimmy's been writing, I've been writing, and uh, we're going to just schedule it when we can. And uh, definitely Marshall and. Uh, Robin, we're also trying to get Susan Cowsill cool. if she can find time in her in her busy schedule to uh, to contribute. Uh, the Cowsills have uh, been friends of ours for a long time. They sang backup on Jimmy's song "Now and Then" on the Blow Up album, and they've remained good friends with ours. And of course, John Cowsill now playing drums with the Beach Boys. Uh, so anyway, yeah, that that's what we're we're looking forward to. And we have a lot of gigs booked for the new year already too. And it's, uh, it's what we do, Tom. Yeah, very exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing the Smithereens live again and formally meeting in person as well. Dennis, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, uh, Tom. I I, uh, I want to thank you. I, I had a good time. And thanks, really, thanks to everybody out there for listening to this podcast and to the Smithereens. And we couldn't do it without you. Seriously. My pleasure, yeah. Dennis. And before we go, we're going to play one more song from the Smithereens Lost Album. It's the last track on the record. It's called All Through the Night. And again, you can get a copy at officialsmithereens.com. Everybody's 
sit right down and listen to me Listen people, gather around, there's something to see Sister, sister, no one's gonna hurt you tonight Oh my brother, give your love with all of your might Don't you know, things will be alright I will be there with you all through the night Little darling, don't you be afraid of the night Don't you cry It's okay to turn off the light Little baby Nothing's gonna harm you tonight Close your eyes Daddy's home, now everything's right Don't you know Things will be alright I will be there with you all through the night Oh yeah The world keeps changing and you ought to know There's no explaining why it hurts you so No one understands me like you do I'm living today, I want me to stay Everybody get together, do what is right. Stand up tall, gather round and follow the light. If you fall, don't give up the fight. I will be there with you all through the night. Don't you know? Will be alright. I will be there with you all through the night.